from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to From the Catbird Seat, a poetry podcast from the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress. I'm Ann Holmes, the Center's Digital Content Manager. In December 2013, singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash completed a three-day special residency at the Library of Congress. After two nights of concerts in the Coolidge Auditorium, she ended her residency in a more intimate setting. She joined Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey in a conversation about the power of lyric language, the intersections of songwriting and poetry, and the artistic influence of their fathers, Johnny Cash and Eric Trethewey. Later on in the conversation, Natasha and Roseanne were both asked to share a favorite example of lyric language in poem and song. Natasha played a recording of The LNN Don't Stop Here Anymore by June Carter Cash, and Roseanne read the Philip Larkin poem in Arundel Tomb. On today's episode, we'll listen to the beginning of this hour-long conversation. But first, let's go behind the scenes of the event with Natasha Trethewey. A few months ago, Rob Casper, the head of the Poetry and Literature Center, visited Natasha in Illinois, and they spent some time reminiscing about that event with Roseanne Cash almost five years ago. Here they are. This is Rob Casper, and I'm in the office of Natasha Trethewey, our 19th Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry uh, up in Evanston, Illinois, here to talk to her about her December 2013 event with Roseanne Cash. So Natasha, I want to start by just asking what it was like to meet Roseanne, and what were your first impressions? Well, it was wonderful meeting Roseanne, and I'm a fan, and so um, getting to talk with her in person about influence, because we both had fathers who do the same thing that we did, and we learned a lot from them. Um, She had just finished um, working on her collection of the hundred songs that she'd learned from her father that she needed to know, and I could have made a list like that from what my father told me. She's someone who is deeply interested in poetry, Um, which was also thrilling to see, and she is quite warm and personable. I felt like I had known her a long time when I met her. It was wild because we didn't spend that much time with with her before the event, and um, I think we were up in the office just for 20 minutes, half hour, and then we went downstairs, uh, and there you go. We started this moderate discussion. How do you feel about how things progressed with her, this person you've just met who you admire deeply and whose father you admire deeply? Right. And whose father my father admired deeply right. and whose songs my father would play on his guitar. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I particularly liked the moment where we both presented and talked about um, she chose a poem that she wanted to talk about and I chose a song that I wanted to talk about. And I would have chosen um, the LNM Don't Stop Here Anymore, um, as June Carter Cash sang it, even if I weren't meeting with Roseanne. Um, but getting to be there and talk about that and to talk about poetry with her was, it was like an experience unlike I'd ever had before. Was it one of the more unusual experiences you had uh, as Poet Laureate? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
I've never had the chance to sit down with someone who is uh, a singer-songwriter like that, mm -hmm. um, who cares as much about the song as put to music as she does about the song as it appears on the page in a poem. Since then, I've seen her every couple of years because um, she and I are on the panel with um, Salman Rushdie and a few other folks um, to choose um, the Penn Awards in American Songwriting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I've had to sort of learn more about the art of songwriting and the poetry of songwriting in order to be on that panel. First time I walked into that room, I said, oh, I, I feel really out of my depth. And she said, nah. <laughs> I imagine that the, the conversation we had paved the way for that uh, sense of being comfortable with her and talking with her and thinking about the relationship between uh, songwriting and poetry and yeah. sort of presenting it as such um, with this award. Yeah. Um, what I'm interested in is thinking about what it means to be a poet and connecting to these other art forms. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're so comfortable with and so um, well known for your work as an acrostic poet. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of connection to visual art compare in any way to the connection you felt during the course of our conversation between uh, poetry and song lyrics? Yeah, I, I think that there's a way that um, not only the the lyrics of the song, but also the music itself can open a pathway for you to consider other ideas about the way y you might be feeling about a particular work. Um, for example, the qualities of tone, the sort of the depths of meaning that you can get in a song, not just from the words, but also what the music is doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. A good example for me is Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, you have what the lyrics are saying, you know, everybody knows about Mississippi, Goddamn, you know, Alabama made me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Um, so you have these words that are being sung, but then you also have this music that's sort of chugging along like a show tune, a little bit of a train going by, that is much peppier than what's being said. And I think it's in the intersection between those two things that I find uh, the possibilities of a poem emerging and asking me to see two different registers at one time. It's right. the way in a poem there's always something in the foreground and something in the background right. trying to bridge the distance between those two. Between those words, between that music, there's some other path that I have to try to find my way into. Yeah, it, it was interesting looking over the conversation and remembering how you talked about your sense of musicality as a poet and how that's something you work very hard to create in the poems, but it sort of pervades them without without being explicit. And it's interesting as a contrast to, at one point we were talking about um, uh, the Rolling Stones, what was the song? Um, it's just a shot away. What's that song? I, I can't think of the song. <laughs> I don't remember. Anyway, okay. we were talking about the Rolling Stones song. <laughs> okay. And, you know, basically, Roseanne Cash was saying, without that backbeat, you know, there's not much there. Give me shelter. We're talking oh, about give me shelter. Okay. And so it's, it, it, I'm suddenly realizing that you are always implicitly or in subtler ways pushing a kind of backbeat, pushing a kind of rhythm that you know poems can do, but you don't want that to take over in the way that you're listening to a song. Mm -hmm. You can't help but get, especially a song with a backbeat, you can't help but right. get caught up in how the, uh, the music itself propels the lyrics forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when I'm 
when I'm working on a poem, I do tend to focus on um, visual imagery primarily. I mean, that goes back yeah. to you sort of talking about my interest in ekphrasis, um, because I, I like looking at an image and starting from there to see what other kinds of thinking it will generate. But at the same time, of course, I'm always tapping my foot. Um, and I'm not thinking about that. Um, one time somebody came up to me after a reading and said um, that she was a musician and a, a, a composer and she worked on the organ. And she said that the whole time I was reading, I was tapping my foot like the way you play the pedals on a piano or an organ, and that meant I was switching feet, and I was doing certain things on downbeats and then other ones, and it's sort of, it's an unconscious thing that I'm doing. So, because I can focus on image, there's a way that you feel the music, and it's there, you know, in your body. And so that's why when I'm listening to, when I'm writing poetry, I often put on some music that might help me enter the space of the poem in a different way. That's interesting. Do you ever feel like you put on music and start to write and then you have to switch it up because you're going in a different direction than the music is taking I, you? I think I, I think it probably falls away at some point. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. One last question. As I said in my intro for this event, this wasn't the first time a poet laureate had um, a kind of high-profile conversation with a noteworthy singer-songwriter. Uh, Ted Kuzer had done the similar sort of thing with John Prime many years before. But I wonder, is that the kind of work a poet laureate should be doing, connecting poetry to other art forms and talking about how poetry is really in conversation with the world in a bigger way, as opposed to saying, okay, poems are the thing we need to read above all else. You know, I'm going to go out there and, you know, cheerlead for poetry alone. (laughs) (laughs) No, I absolutely think... um that it shouldn't be just poetry, that, that poets should be in conversation with other artists, other practitioners of various arts, too. Um, I think it creates a bigger audience for all of us, for the arts in general. I mean, you know, they they're, they just remounted the theatrical installation of My Native Guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here, here at the Atlanta History Center, here it is. Um, being performed by these actors um, with also a vocalist and a composer. And what I've discovered is that um, there's this whole other audience who might not have come to poetry, but they're coming through the theater, so it creates a bigger audience for the poetry, but I think there are plenty of people who are going because they knew the poetry, which creates another a bigger audience right. for this sort of theater company. Right. So I, I think that those conversations that, that, that help show people that they have ways into art forms that they didn't think that they did is exactly what we should be doing. Okay, and that's exactly where we should be ending. Many thanks to Natasha and Rob for that conversation, the perfect preface to this 2013 event with Roseanne Cash. Right now, we'll listen to some segments from the first half of the conversation. To watch or hear the latter half, which includes the discussion of the LNN Don't Stop Here Anymore and An Arundel Tomb, make sure to catch the full webcast on the library's website. Okay, here we go. Uh, So my first question is, both of you have fathers who are practitioners of your art. Given that, what might the two of you already know about each other, and what might you want to know? Hmm, that's pretty good, Rob. (laughs) Well, I must say that 
I was really taken with the interview that you did with Terry Gross about the list. Um, and of course, if, you, if any of you in the audience heard it, then you know that um, uh, Roseanne was talking about this list of 100 songs that her father told her she needed to know, right? To be yeah. a singer-songwriter. And I remember thinking um, that there was a similarity, but also something that was very different in the way that you were describing what your father did for you in that instance. Um, I remembered that I'd always asked my father for those kinds of things. Uh, my father was my first professor of creative writing when I went to graduate school, so I was in his class. Wow. <clears throat> and so I was getting, you know, that kind of thing from him in class, but what it really reminded me of was um, at that point when I was in graduate school, I knew I wanted to be a poet. My father and I were in New Orleans and we were walking down the street in the quarter and we stopped in front of a doorway because we could hear the lovely voice of a singer, you know, coming out of the doors. And I kind of listened for a moment and then said very wistfully, oh, I wish I could sing. And my father said to me, how are you going to be a poet if you can't sing? And for that moment, I was pretty devastated. I still can't sing, but I think uh, <laughs> I sort of steeled myself to figure out a way to make my poems like song. That's interesting because I strive to make my songs, the lyrics, be able to stand alone on the page without their melody. So we're doing the same thing. I think so. But, oh, well, but you could sense. probably sing my poems, and I could not. Maybe I could say your songs. Well, because <laughs> you wouldn't want me to sing them. They, but I, <laughs> I don't know. My songs coming from you might sound kind of like da 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 da. You know, I you stick with your poems. But what I um, what interests me about that, and I, I hadn't really thought about it in this way about what fathers give to their daughters is that there's a certain gentleness and ease in what a father gives a daughter. There's not that sense of urgency or um, kind of proprietorship that fathers have with sons to be like them. So for me anyway, what my father gave me was with complete freedom and generosity. Well, I think I also never felt pressured to do what my father yeah. does, but I wanted to do it too. And, and I think it is that kind of tenderness or gentleness that you're talking about. And the ways that he sort of instilled the uh, importance of poetry in me. On long trips, my father would say, if you, if you get bored, why don't you write a poem about it? So mm -hmm. it was something I was always doing. That's so smart of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's interesting. My father passed on a love of literature and poetry to me as well, and songs, of course. But he liked really, um, I guess, what you would call folk art poet, poem, poets. They were very simple. There was a, poem, a poet named Will Carlton, and he wrote about rural life and a preacher who went to the Holy Land and then talked about it endlessly until he bored his congregation. You know, his poems would be about these very small pictures of rural life. And um, I, I used to read those poems to him in the last few years of his life. Yeah. Well, my father used to dream of being a, a 
a country singer. I mean, <laughs> this he, is so funny. <laughs> I mean, there was a point I remember in his life where, you know, he you know, had a couple of glasses of wine and said, came in and said, I'm going to Nashville, honey. And this is, <laughs> you know, way after you might think of someone making that journey to Nashville to make a career. But he, um, I think it, on one of those nights, I used to sit out on his porch in the country and he tried to teach me to play the guitar. Um, Did he play guitar? He does, yeah. yeah. He plays the guitar and, you know, he'd be singing some lead belly song and, you know, trying to teach me. Um, and, I, and I could never do it, but we both wrote poems about that night. He finished his and, and, and published it. The poem of mine, Guitar Lesson, that I tried writing, has never been one that I felt was finished uh, successful enough to go out in the world, but I've been trying to write about him trying to teach me that. But in a way you did, because um, your poetry has an element of the blues in it. You know, so maybe you... It worked its way it in. It worked so. its way in, <laughs> I think so. I mean, to me it does, that kind of southern, swampy, dark-edged, oh, love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm interested in talking about um, the power of tradition. Um, and one thing I realized in referencing uh, the list is what it must be like uh, for a musician to be inspired, a songwriter, to be inspired to write her own songs as opposed to playing songs that you know and, and have been passed down and you find a way musically to, to uh, inhabit differently. And I wondered if there's a parallel in that for poets too, that, that, kind, of, that kind of need to think through, feel through uh, these, these uh, great songs, these great poems, and, and then also sort of juxtapose that with the poems and the songs that you write yourself. Well, it certainly provides a standard for the kind of songs you want to write. Um, and I used to write down the lyrics, like I, I would read the lyric on a page of a, what I thought was a great song, and then I would rewrite it for myself to dismantle it and figure out why it worked. Why, what made that a great song? You know, just breaking down the rhyme scheme, uh, how, in, pattern would repeat or an image that showed up in the first verse would then tie up the song at the end of the last verse. Why was that so powerful? And then, you know, as someone who wanted to be a songwriter to try to replicate that in my own writing and steal as quietly as I could, you know. Yeah. That was something I wanted to ask you about, so I'm glad you asked her, Rob, um, because you also talked about um, when you did inhabit those songs on the list and what it meant for you to, to sing songs that you hadn't written. And I was thinking about how I, I know that you also write fiction and that um, fiction writers um, will often give an assignment to students to actually just copy, write out um, a story in longhand that someone else has already written to sort of feel it um, in the body and in, the, you know, in your hand writing it. And I was thinking about how I'd never done that, but I use imitation all the time for myself and with my students. And it, it, it's exactly what you say. When you're imitating a poem, line by line, I'm looking at the pattern of imagery and the syntax and and the caesuras in the poem and, and how it does what it does. And I feel like when my students do that, because at first they're a little nervous about 
imitation because mm -hmm. it they think it means copying and I have to assure them that it's just like form and whatever material they have to pour into the form will be different but once they do it they often write some of the best poems and I think some of you know some of the poems I've been happiest with are poems of mine that are deeply influenced yeah. by the movement the rhetorical and syntactical structure of a poem I loved that I find the very same thing and um, also, as an adjunct to that, I think it's really important to know the tradition you're writing in. If you don't know who wrote these kind of poems or who wrote these kind of songs that came before you, you know, you're at sea. It's so, I, I can't stand, I work with young songwriters sometimes, and I can't stand it if they're writing in a, you know, strict folk tradition and they haven't listened to any other folk songwriters. But, um, I was going to say something else about that, about imitation and inspiration, but it'll come back. <laughs> Let me ask it in a simple yes or no way. Do you think that, do you think that whether or not it's a sung ballad or it's a persona poem, you know, a sequence of sonnets, it matters? Does that, does that shift in form matter? Do they do something different for us? Well, um, I suppose in both cases you want something of, to be memorable and rhyme uh, or the, the musicality of song is what helps us to remember things and to make that story memorable. So I don't know um, if that's what accounts for uh, a particular difference, whether it's the ballad or the persona poem, because I also think it's about voice as well. Um, that hearing the intimacy of a voice is also what helps us connect to a particular time and place. And let's not, not forget, I mean, we're kind of talking about the lyric quality, but, you know, a lot of songs require a backbeat, you know. If you read the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter on the page, it's kind of cool, but you got to have that driving yeah, backbeat or else yeah. it's not Gimme Shelter anymore. What's it like to, to read your, read your, <laughs> we all love Gimme Shelter, but uh, uh, what, what's just it like to read your, <laughs> yeah, I guess if you said just a shot away, it doesn't really work the same way. Right. Uh, but you read, you, you read your song lyrics to yourself, right? And, oh, sure. And, and, and do you think You mean about... when I'm editing or as mm -hmm. I write? Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. And at what point do you start actually singing them? Uh, well, no, that's an interest. that's, the question I think you're saying is which comes first, music or lyrics? And the answer is both, because it comes in all different ways. Sometimes I have a complete lyric uh, or a partial lyric that it doesn't have a melody and the melody comes later. Sometimes I'm co-writing and somebody else is writing the music. Sometimes I have a, a melody with nothing to it and I go through reams of lyric ideas to get something or something sparks. You know, I mean, it, you know, it happens a million different ways. That's right. If, it, if you knew how it was going to happen, if it was predictable, it wouldn't be poetry and songwriting anymore. It would be something else. Natasha, do you, do you uh, listen to yourself read poems? Do you ever record yourself reading poems? Or, and do you always read the poems at, at some point in the process as you're writing them? Oh, the whole time that I'm writing them. Um, I, I don't think I could write them without hearing them and, and feeling them, you know. But I'm tapping my feet as I write them um, and, and hearing and feeling the music in that way.
But of course, it, it's, it's different. You know, I'm thinking about how um, the, the struggle, I think, of, of trying to create a kind of musicality in poems. I mean, this is something that you and I have talked about. Um, Rob and I have talked about this, and I'll just confess it. Uh, this feels very much like a confession. <laughs> but I, I feel like because I, I grew up loving the rhythm of syntax, I love sentences, and, and I, um, I, I hear the rhythm of syntax. And yet, sometimes you can read a poem, a, a particular poet, and be so focused on um, perhaps content or the, the way that imagery is used that the, the musicality might wash over you in such a way that you don't take notice of it. You know, um, well, I think T.S. Eliot talked about that. Um, just that, you know, some, some poems, um, we uh, attend to the sense and let the sound wash over us. And in others, we attend to the sound, the sonic qualities, and let the sense wash over us. And I think maybe because I'm not musically inclined, it, you know, in some ways, um, like I couldn't sing when I heard that woman singing in New Orleans, I, I'm always drawn to attending to the sense, but feel the music when it's there. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm very attentive with that with my own work. So it's always surprising to me if I, you know, allow myself uh, a moment of reading a, a critic who doesn't realize how musical my poems are. <laughs> there I said it. <laughs> and I think it's because maybe they're just attending to the sense, uh, you know, the content. I think your poems are incredibly musical. I would say you're a great musician. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to both of our uh, wonderful uh, guests on stage. Uh, Roseanne Cash, Natasha Trethewey. Thank you for joining us on From the Catbird Seat. To learn more about poetry past, present, and future at the Library of Congress, visit us at loc.gov poetry. You can watch or listen to the full events featured on today's episode by going to loc.gov discover and clicking on video webcasts. We'll be back next week for another episode. Stay tuned. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.